So today we're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And this book is giving us reason after reason for why Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to anyone or anything else that we might be inclined to give first place in our lives. Uh, that person or thing to which we would give our, our ultimate loyalty, our, our deepest devotion, uh, our greatest honor. Um, Hebrews is saying Jesus is the one. He is the one to be preeminent above anything, anyone else in your life. And now today uh, we're going to be uh, looking at something called the New Covenant. And covenant is not a word we use a lot, kind of in everyday experience. And I'm guessing that when I said covenant, uh, your first reaction might not have been, oh, hey, that sounds really interesting. Please tell me more. But what if instead of covenant I said God's promises? Are you interested in those? And... uh, do you want to know if those promises are true for you? Because the, the reality is, is that if we belong to this new covenant that Jesus established, then all of the greatest promises of God are true for you and for me. So let's take a look. We're in Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm going to pick it up here at verse 6. And the author's just been talking about the difference between uh, the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest versus the, uh, the high priests under the, the, the Old Covenant and uh, under the Levitical system. And we've been talking about that. If that's something that sounds strange or unfamiliar to you and, and you haven't caught those messages, you can always go to our website, philida.org, and, and kind of get caught up there. So, verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, meaning the former high priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, being founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, And here he's going to quote from the prophet Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The nation Israel at that time was divided into two kingdoms, uh, Israel and Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. So one of the many things the Son of God um, accomplished when he came was to fulfill God's promises about a new covenant. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, what, what exactly is a covenant? Well, in simple terms, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. It could be uh, two individuals or a couple of groups, but there's these two, two parties to the covenant, and both parties agree to do certain things. But now, what makes a covenant a covenant, especially in the Bible, is that it involves some very significant, serious promises about some very serious things. Now, the covenant example we're probably the most familiar with is that of marriage. That relationship is meant to be a covenant relationship because it's a relationship that's built on serious promises and those promises are meant to be kept so a husband and wife stand before a group of people and before God they they make promises they pledge to honor to love to take care of one another and to be faithful to one another Regardless of circumstances, that's why we say for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, as long as they both shall live. Now, those are very serious commitments. And when I say serious, I don't mean that they're unhappy, okay? These are promises we make with joy, with, with uh, earnestness and, and delight, uh, but what what I mean by serious is these promises are meant to be taken very seriously. That's why we make them before God. That's why we make them before other witnesses. And what we're doing is we're saying we're going to make every effort to the very best of our ability. We are going to keep the promise we make to this other person. Now, why do we do that? Well, it's because the relationship is so important. Um, we want to make it as strong as we can because there's so much at stake. And we just instinctively know that we've got to build this relationship on something far more reliable than just our feelings, our emotions. And so we make these promises because we want our spouse to know that we're going to be there for them. They can depend on us. Now, I understand that not everybody views marriage like this as a, as a covenant relationship. But I think most of us realize deep down inside that's how it ought to be. Covenants are built on promises, and those promises are meant to be taken seriously. Now think about that and think how amazing it is then that God, the one true God, creator of all, the one who made us in his image, 
that God would make covenants with people like us. Why has he done that? Because he wants us to be certain that he will keep these very big promises about very big things. I mean, it's just amazing. And so the Bible records several covenants, uh, but there are two of them that are talked about here in, in Hebrews 8. And one's called the Old Covenant, and one's called the New One. And by the Old Covenant, it's referring to the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, with the Israelites, when God, through Moses, brought them out of slavery in Egypt and was taking them into the land he had promised Abraham and his descendants. And there at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with the Israelites and God made promises. He promised through Moses to be their God and they would be his people. And he promised to protect them and to provide for them and to bless them in every conceivable way as a nation. And then they, in turn, the people promised, they agreed to worship only Yahweh, the one true God, and to keep all of his instructions, his Torah, which we often translate as law. Now, why did God do this? Why did God enter into a covenant with the Israelites? Um, and what was his intention? Well, his purpose was that the people of Israel would be utterly unique among all the nations, that they would be very distinct by how they worshiped God, how they talked about God, and, and the way that they conducted their lives, the way they lived in relationship with God. God's intention was that these people would be distinct, distinctly different from all the nations of the world, all the nations around them, so that those nations, those people, could learn the truth of who the one true God really is, and what he's like. But the Israelites broke this covenant again and again. And they began to do exactly what the surrounding nations were doing. And they worshipped many gods. And they acted just like those nations surround them, doing all kinds of terrible things, like religious prostitution, even sacrificing their own children to these idols, these false gods. And by doing this, they were completely distorting the message of who God is. They weren't being different at all. They looked just like the surrounding nations, and so the message about who God really is got very murky. So what did God do? He sent messengers. He sent prophets to the Israelites. And he kept, through these prophets, calling them back, back to his covenant. And he would warn them of the disastrous consequences that would happen if they did not return to his covenant. And, you know, occasionally the people would. They would repent for a while. 
and you know they'd they'd pledge to keep the covenant again and and then they would they would fall they would break the covenant once more and this cycle just kept repeating itself again and again over a period of something like a thousand years from the time they first made the covenant on Sinai until God finally brought the judgment that he had warned them about and they ended up being conquered and sent into exile. But those prophets did more than just call the people back to the covenant and they they did more than warn the people about the consequences of breaking the covenant. They actually predicted a new covenant that God would make with his people one day. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that day is now. The new covenant that God promised has come. Jesus made it happen. He has fulfilled God's promise of a new covenant. And so now the question is, well, what's new about it? What's new about the new covenant? And that's what these verses in Hebrews are telling us. And in order to emphasize what these verses are saying, (laughs) I first want to point out what they're not saying. What they're not saying is new or different about the new covenant. So here are a couple of ways that the new covenant is not different from the old. And the first is, the difference is not that the old covenant had commands and the new covenant doesn't. That's not the difference. And yet sometimes people think that way. They'll think that, well, because we become part of this this new covenant through faith in Jesus, not by, by our good works, not by obedience, how obedient we are, that's not how we become part of the covenant. We become the part of the covenant through faith in Jesus. Well, because that's true, then the new covenant must not include obedience. It's not about obeying commands. And the idea here is that somehow having faith in Jesus and obeying his commands, those two things are in conflict. They don't go together. And that is simply not true. For one thing, the new covenant is full of commands. All kinds of commands. In fact, one of the biggest commands Jesus gave us uh, in Matthew chapter 28, we, we call this the Great Commission, Jesus tells his followers Go and make disciples of all nations. And when he said that, he wasn't making a suggestion. He wasn't just offering advice. Hey, you know, as you live your life and do your thing, hey, if you got some spare time or you don't know what else to do, you might think about making disciples of all nations. No. It's like, that's the mission I'm giving you people. That's a command. Jesus also said, this is John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commands. That's about as clear as it can be. If you love Jesus, that's part of having faith in him, or another way of talking about it. If you love him, if you have faith in him, if you trust him, you'll obey his commands. So 
Having faith in Jesus does not make obeying his commands optional. Faith in Jesus actually makes obeying his commands possible. Because apart from him, apart from relying on him, we simply can't do it. At least not the way he wants us to. It's only by relying on him. Now, it's very true that we are not saved, we're not made right with God by obedience, but we are saved for obedience. And you can see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for example, 2, 8 through 10, actually. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace, undeserved favor from God. You've been saved through faith faith in Jesus. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So that's very clear. We're not saved by our obedience. Verse 10, though, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there you have it. We're saved for obedience, not by obedience. If you want to think of it another way, uh, obedience, obeying commands, that's the fruit. It's not the root of our salvation. The root is faith in Jesus. But the point is, obeying commands is not what's different about the new covenant. Both covenants involved obeying commands. All right, second thing it's not, that's not different It's not different that the old covenant commands were hard and the new covenant commands are easy or easier. And, you know, that's the idea that, that the law of Moses was, was impossible to obey, but because Jesus is gracious, he gives us commands that are much easier to obey. Okay, look at Matthew 5, verse 43. Now, this is Jesus. This is the maker of the new covenant. And he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Old Testament doesn't actually teach that, but that had become kind of the traditional understanding. Love your neighbor. It's okay to hate your enemy, though. But I say to you, this is Jesus, this is the new covenant, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I challenge you to find a command in the Old Testament that's harder than that. That's not what's different. Easier commands. And then one more thing. One more thing that's not new about the New Covenant, it's not that the New Covenant is based on grace and the Old Covenant wasn't. No, the Old Covenant is full of grace. In fact, if you go back and read about the the, uh, establishment of this covenant, when Moses is with God on Mount Sinai, God describes himself like this. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, 
Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding, overflowing in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Look at that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's why, as part of the Old Covenant, there were the sacrifices, there were the priests, there was the temple. To forgive sin. Well, that's grace. There's all kinds of grace in the Old Covenant. And that's why David, in Psalm 119, which is all about the Torah, God's instructions, or we call the law, uh, it says so many positive things about the Old Covenant. So look at verse 47. I delight in your commands. I delight in your commands because I love them. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law, your Torah. I meditate on it all day long. David certainly saw the Torah as a gracious gift of God. So that's not what's different. It's not you know, grace of the new covenant versus something else in the old. Now, it's true, it's true that the new covenant, you could say, there's more grace or a greater manifestation of grace, a greater outpouring of grace. So that is, uh, this is what's new about the new covenant. The author of Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah to tell us what's new. And this is what it is. What's new is God bringing about a radical internal transformation in the heart and mind of everyone, every single person who belongs to the new covenant. I'll say that one more time. What's new is God bringing about a radical internal change in everyone who belongs to the new covenant community. So verse 10, I'll put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And verse 11, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That's what's different. Every single member of the covenant community knowing the Lord personally, by personal faith, from the heart. See, under the old covenant, the way you became part of the covenant community was simply by being born to Israelite parents. It wasn't because you knew God personally. Now, we had a few exceptions. We have like Ruth. Ruth enters into the covenant community through personal faith. Uh, but mostly it was simply by being born into an Israelite family. Now, there were people like David who did know the Lord personally. They, they, he trusted him. He loved him. Uh, that's why he makes those comments about in Psalm 119. But see, by and large, that wasn't the norm. Uh, there were many Israelites who did not know the Lord personally. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says, um, these people 
God says through Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but they don't really know me. Their hearts are far from me. But now, under the new covenant, the way we enter into the covenant community is not by being born into it, but by being born again. Being born of God's Spirit. And when God's Spirit gives us new birth, He begins to bring about a profound transformation within us. God says, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Now, that, that's not just talking about Scripture memorization. Because you can, you can memorize all of the Bible and still not love it. Okay, you might think of the religious leaders who hated Jesus, you know. They're, uh, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They didn't really know Him. They didn't really trust Him. So this, when he talks about, you know, writing, putting their laws in, in our minds and writing them on our hearts, this is talking about God transforming our hearts and minds so that we actually want to know and, and obey and, and trust him. That, th this is what the prophet Ezekiel said about it. This is from Ezekiel chapter 36. He said, yeah, uh, through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I, Yahweh, will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and look at this, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. These are the better promises of the new covenant. That God himself by His Spirit, would incline our hearts to welcome His Word and love His Word and desire His Word. He gives us, in effect, a new wanter. Now, it's not an all-at-once thing. We don't, we don't, when we put our faith in Jesus, we don't instantly understand and love every part of God's Word equally. The point is God begins a work of transforming us and he promises to work in us to overcome our ignorance, to overcome our resistance and instead move us to trust him and to love his word and to love him more and more and more. Because the problem isn't commands. Yeah, That's an over... People oversimplify this and say, well, you know, they had to obey commands. It's not about the commands. Verse 8, it says, God found fault with the people. There's nothing wrong with the commands. And here's the thing. People don't disobey God. When we disobey God, it, it's not because his word is too hard. It's not because we can't possibly really understand it. No. People who reject the Word of God, it's not because they don't understand it. They understand it. They just think it's stupid. 
they think God's commands are foolish, or they're mean, or they're contrary to happiness. No, if I do that, I won't be happy. I, I got a better idea about happiness. See, that's our natural condition, apart from God's Spirit working in our hearts. We don't want His Word. We don't want to trust it. We don't want to obey it. You know, we like to think that we're rational creatures, don't we? You know, we, we like to think that uh, we believe the things we believe because they're so reasonable and, and we're just, you know, smart and, you know, all the evidence supports it. And that's why we believe what we believe. You know, most of the time, honestly, that's not really true. We believe what we want to believe. And then very cleverly, we adjust our beliefs to make it look like what we want to do is, is the smart thing to do. <clears throat> and we're so good at this, we often don't even, we don't even notice we're doing it. We don't even notice how our, our beliefs, our thoughts are actually in service to our desires. And that's what's so great about the new covenant. It's based on the promise that God will give us new desires. He'll give us a desire for His glory. He'll give us a desire to know Him. He'll give us a desire to believe and embrace His truth so that we start hearing His Word as good news that leads to happiness instead of bad news that leads to misery. Okay, so what, what do we do with this? What difference should it make to us that Jesus has fulfilled God's promises about a new covenant? I'll give you a couple things, I think. And, and the first probably seems obvious, and that is we should appreciate Jesus. We should joyfully appreciate him for making these new covenant promises come true for anyone who puts their trust in him. It doesn't matter what family you were born into or what nation or ethnic group or anything. That's irrelevant. But through faith in Jesus, because of what he accomplished, these new covenant promises become true for us. And two in particular are mentioned here. Uh, the first is in verse 11, where God says, They will all know me. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. So when you put your trust in Jesus and become part of his covenant people, you can be confident that God is going to work in you, work in your heart and mind to help you know him more and more, to love his word more and more, to overcome all of your stubbornness, and help you find your ultimate happiness in him, because that's where it is. In other words, you're not doomed to stay the way you are. So if you get frustrated, maybe at how little you feel you know God, how little you, know, you seem motivated, well, if you're part of this covenant community, and by the way, this doesn't mean you don't do anything. There are things we do to grow in our knowledge of God, become, you know, we got to be in his word, we got to uh, be in community with his people, a church. We've got to do the things he tells us to do. But the point is, God is the one who works in us.
to desire more and more that we do obey Him and follow His will. So Philippians 2.12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out for or because it is God who works in you both to will or to want and to act according to His good purpose. So that's the first promise that's true. The second promise is in verse 12, where God says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. When you become part of Christ's covenant community, through trust in Him, you can be confident. You can be confident that God forgives all your sins. Not most of them, not some of them, not almost all of them, every single one. So Romans 8.1, there is now no, that is a huge two-letter word, there is no condemnation for those who are in, in union with Christ Jesus. So, that's the first application. Joyfully appreciate Jesus for making those promises true for anyone who puts their trust in him and becomes part of his covenant community. The other application, I think, is very important also. And that is that we would remember what changes hearts and minds. It's the power of God not our power. In other words, it's not how eloquent we are. It's not how persuasive we are, how clever we are. And it's definitely not how angry we are at the lost that wins them, wins them to faith in Jesus. It's the power of God because only God can change hearts. And that's what he promises to do. So we've got to rely on God's power instead of relying on our cleverness. or other. And that doesn't mean we, we don't explain, we don't do our best to, to make things clear. But ultimately, it's the power of God to change hearts, not our power that we need to rely on. Now, how do we rely on God's power? Well, two things in particular. First of all, we share his message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because Scripture tells us that in, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation. It is the power of God to save everyone who believes. So rely on the message by sharing it. And then the second thing is to pray. That's the other way we rely on God's power to change hearts. Romans 10.1, listen to what Paul says here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Why was he praying for the salvation of those kinsmen of his who had not yet believed? Because he knew that it would take a work of God in their hearts. Prayer, prayer is relying on God to do something that we can't do. And so that's how we rely on him and in you know parents as you think about your children 
and wanting them to come to salvation, to faith, to become part of the covenant. They're not part of it just because they were born into your family or you know, your loved ones, your, your friends, whoever it is. Share the good news, you know, explain it, and then pray. And that's where we ought to be investing the bulk of our energy because that's what God uses to change hearts when he brings people into his covenant community by the work of his spirit. So, those are the two applications. Joyfully appreciate Jesus and rely, remember to rely on the power of God to change lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this new covenant. Lord, I, I think it's easy for those of us who have heard about it and have maybe been to church a lot and, and heard these kinds of things to sort of just take them for granted. But Lord, what, what an incredible truth that your new covenant promise is to, to change us from the inside out. And um, Lord, help us, help us just worship our Savior because of bringing this new covenant to pass and, and making us part of it. And Lord, I pray for anyone who has not yet embraced Jesus as Savior. I pray for anybody who, even if they've been coming to church and hearing this kind of stuff for years, but they're still thinking it's about how good they are, how obedient they are, and not about being transformed by your Spirit. Lord, help us. Help us yield fully to your Spirit's transforming power that we might live finding our ultimate joy and satisfaction in you. And we pray you do your transforming power in us. In Jesus' name, amen.